My name is Benoit Delhomme, and you are listening to the Cinematography Podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft, and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. It is time again. It is episode 49 of the Cinematography Podcast, and I still have a head cold. It's amazing how that worked out. Well, it worked out because we're recording this mere seconds after we recorded the raps for 48. Shh, you're giving it away. All I'm of sorry. our secrets. All of our magic. You're, you're, they're peeking behind my bloomers, the you, curtain. You it's... can almost smell the Hall's mentholiptus on my, on my breath right now. I know I can. Oh, boy. So, uh, Ben, in our new Close Focus segment. Which was named by our good friend George Foyt, who's never been on the show yet. And, and we'll stop giving George credit after this one because this is now three times in a row. I'll give George credit if I feel like. Give George credit for the end of time. Yeah. Okay, so so anyway, George, but no one else knows who, okay, a few people know George. Okay, you're, you're giving me the, the death stare I right am, now. totally. George Floyd, who who won the Best Emerging emerging Cinematographer Award from his union several years in a row. Several years in a row, really? Well, at least two, wow, I think. Two, well, it's, there's an, it's George is of... awesome. I love George's work. He's an, he's an amazing guy and amazing cinematographer. We better just like get him on here like immediately. We, we so. really need to get him on here. Okay, so, uh, so Ben, uh, close focus, named by George Floyd. Close focus. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, what are we talking about today? Uh, it was something that we talked about in the last episode, and I think it merits a little bit more conversation, and that is our relationship to our media collection. Mm, or what collection, some people might say, because I sure do see them going for like a dollar a DVD, a quarter a DVD, a quarter a, a tape at rummage sales yeah. all over the place. And So true. And uh, Goodwill. And I think we talked about this a little bit earlier because um, the podcast, the the horror fiction podcast that I made last year called Video Palace. Ooh, which I listened to. Oh, oh, cool. It was I, great. Oh, good. I'm glad you liked it. <laughs> so, yeah, I know I said I would never listen to it, but that was a total lie. And once I started listening to it, could not stop. Oh, great. Thank so, you. So there it is. There, And you can go ahead and leave all this in, editors, because uh, I, I, I have a wholehearted endorsement now of Video Palace and encourage all of our listeners if they want to hear some good podcasting fiction they should totally listen to that right so, away. so when we were making that um uh bob and i bob derosa who i co-wrote it with and i uh watched a documentary called uh i think it's called Adju do not adjust your tracking or maybe it's just called adjust your tracking mm. uh it's a documentary about people who collect vhs tapes mm. and one of the things about that culture in fact we had one of the people from that documentary it, uh a, a gentleman named eric spudic is in Video Palace in episode one, because we had some real people in there before we, you know, completely bait and switched you and added all the fake people. Mm. Um, uh, so Eric's a real a real VHS collector and seller. And, how many does he have? Uh, I don't know how many he has. He used to have a, a storefront called Spudix Movie Empire, and now I think it's all online. Mm. You can probably find it. And uh, there's like a whole culture around the VHS thing because... Uh, there are gazillions of movies that were only ever released on VHS and will never see the light of day on DVD. I've worked on a few of those. They may not even be able to find the film print to make another film print of Correct. it, too. It's like there is stuff that is just gone. It's like the stuff that they dumped in the ocean once upon a time. Yeah. Lost forever. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, like you might dismissively say like a lot of those are like B movies or straight to video movies or whatever, but actually some of them are movies that played in theaters that had followings. Yeah. That are just, that are by directors who are still working today or by directors who've won awards, who won awards maybe for some of those films. 
and yet the uh, there's no trace of them because they didn't really stick around in the culture. Yeah, or if there is any trace of it, it's very, very poor quality. So very, and, big, and like, unfortunately, VHS not a great quality. But you know, and that's also part of the allure of VHS. I think is that you know it feels like you're watching everything through a funky ass filter. Well, I, I will tell you uh, that one one of the things that I do when I'm not at high red cameras or at the the podcast is I'm a member of the ASC technical committee. I didn't so, know that. Yeah, they, I never we never talked about that. No. I, that's that's what I that's what in fact that's what's going on tomorrow. But oh, well, wow. well, cool. one of the things at the ASC tech committee that we have uh, we keep secrets from each other. Yeah, clearly. So, uh one of the things that that uh the tech committee does is they bring in people who are working at the highest levels of Hollywood and they have them do educational seminars. I know this is this is the cure for insomnia for some of our listeners, but I'll tell you that this is something that will have a direct impact to everyone's lives and will be a big deal for the VHS collectors is artificial intelligence now actually creating new resolution and new detail in old low resolution imaging files. Oh boy. It, yes, in the way that is like the stuff of science fiction like you used to watch like was that Will Smith movie called like Enemy of the State where they're like, oh, it's out of focus. Enhance. Enhance. And then like they enhance. do some things and immediately you can see it. Or well, every episode of 24 ever. Yes, enhance. exactly. Enhance. Like, just enhance like that. On, so a, then, on a spy satellite and they're like pulling off a, a license plate. Anyone who works in media immediately knows that you can't do that. Yeah. That, that, that does not exist. It's complete science fiction. Wait, are you telling me that 24 wasn't a documentary? Because it was <laughs> shot like one and we talked to the DP. Uh, anyway. That sort of technology, that sort of stuff, that interpolation, that stuff of fiction is now becoming a reality. There's a company called Video Gorillas. You can Google them and you can see some samples. They released sort of like a white paper thing where they took old standard def and they turned it into 4K and did a very, very good job. Not because of humans or artists, but because they were been training computers to look at out of focus images and make their best guesses on how to turn that into actually in focus stuff. But it's not focus it's resolution based. So there is resolution there, but they then show it what higher resolution looks like and even higher resolution. And then eventually the computer learning, they, they call it machine learning, uh, is able to do pretty remarkable stuff. So in the case of some of these things that only exist in VHS, and I think that's where Video Gorillas is, gets, gets hired, is actually by some of these companies who there's no other alternative. They get involved and then some number of weeks or months later they go, here you go. And it's incredible. It's so truly so if Eric Spudik is listening, and I'm pretty sure he's not, uh, we can get Tales from the Quad Ed Zone in 8K, finally. <laughs> Maybe not 8K yet, but still getting from like the standard lowly standard def to 720 or 1080, totally realistic in the in the near future. So, but my, my bigger point about this entire subject, and it's something that I've just been thinking about a lot, is like, do you remember uh, the time when you would, and maybe we're, I mean, we're not ancient but we're you know we're in our 40s That's uh, ancient. like uh dicking around in a bookstore finding a book that you never heard of and being like oh wow and then being excited about that book and reading it and maybe sharing it with your friends and it was like this cool thing this cool discovery that you'd made or finding out that something existed and then special ordering it from you know a record store a bookstore a video store and then like that video comes in and you're like i have this thing that like i possess it and and it's something that i care about i have a and i I guess it's like a physical relationship you have with your media not a physical relationship no it's a physical relationship but it's like a tactile i i own this book i own this dvd or this vhs tape or i own this cd and this is a wonderful segue into another uh, uh, interview that we've done, which I, I don't know if it will come out anytime soon. But uh, I will say that 
not only are you right, not only are you right about this, I there, know I'm there, right. there, are, there are other very, very smart people who are talking about how the people who are, there are some people now who are just discovering it, believe it or not, it's millennials. Millennials uh, are coming up in this sort of tactile relationship sort of thing yeah. and investing time, money, and effort in analog sources like records and cassette tapes and everything else. I know everybody likes to take a shit on millennials, but I got to say, I think that's a pretty awesome generation. You know, they've never had, they never really came up with this. They always had digital. They always had virtual. They always had search for this. There's a certain segment now, and it's not just the hipsters who are going, hey, you know what? There is something, there's, there's something to this. There's something to actually owning my media, being able to listen to it whenever I want, not being subject to an internet connection or a DRM, a digital rights management, if for those who don't know well, like there's, but yeah, there's yeah. you can and do with it what you will. And and what people forget is like these things are on Netflix and then they aren't, or they're on that's you right. know Amazon and then they aren't. There's a an album by Fishbone that I love called The Reality of My Surroundings, and it was on Apple Music. And then one day I went to play it, and it was not on Apple Music. Oh yes, a couple times I've gone to Netflix, going like, "Ooh, I can't wait to watch that again," and I'm so glad it's here, only to then go back a month or two, so later to go, eh, whammy, yeah. no no dice. Not there, gone, and not only not there, no one else has picked it up. And and if anyone comes to my house, I'm a giant slob, but amongst my slovenly uh, possessions are a whole lot of books. Dog hair. And a a lot of dog hair, (laughs) and a whole lot of DVDs. And I was actually thinking about getting rid of my DVD collection right around the time I did Video Palace, and honestly doing all the research into kind of people who hold on to old media and the, the kind of tactile relationship that we have with media you know, convinced me that it was worth keeping a lot of my library, even though it's like DVD is, you know, it's, it's obsolete, you know, Blu-ray is better. Blu-ray never really caught on in the same way that DVD did, you know, like I don't buy as many Blu-rays as I used to buy DVDs, but like when John Carpenter's, the thing came out with a remastered, you know, they went back and remastered the whole thing, I think at 4k with the original cinematographer and I saw stuff in that movie I'd never seen anywhere else. It's like, absolutely. I'm buying that. I'm like, it matters to me. And, and now there's a a 4k version of Blu-ray as well too. So, so, you know, uh, this will continue. I think it's a, it's a wonderful way to do these sort of non-commercial screenings, either, you know, in private or with your friends or whatever it is. Owning media is fantastic. uh, And that, Short of like a fire or flood, chances are you're going to be able to keep these things too, even when uh, all sorts of other forms of media now have disappeared and deteriorated and are lost forever. So, uh, Ilya, who is on the show today? Oh my gosh, I'm I'm extremely extremely happy to say that uh, on the show today is Benoit de Homme, and I. I, I think I do his, pronounce his name better in the actual interview, and I, I then I did just now. But but Benoit is. Uh, one of the people who I would say is actually quite influential on me and getting me interested in cinematography. And uh, I read about him in the pages of American Cinematographer a long time ago. He shot a movie called The Scent of Green Papaya. And it is a fantastic looking movie. And if it is whatever the best source is for you to go see that, you should try to see that movie. And uh, you should look at him, look him up on IMDb just to see so many of the things that he's done. But uh, fantastic man. Wonderful, wonderful conversation, and I'm I'm really glad to to have it finally come come to life. Well, here we go. I'm not going to attempt to pronounce his name. Benoit. Here we go, Benoit. The Cinematography Podcast Interview.
Okay, so I'm just going to dive right in because you, yeah, you, yeah. it's a wonderful segue. Before I even do the introductions or anything else, but uh, something I've noticed, and I've, I've talked to a, a scientist about this once actually, and I'll, sh- I'll share it with you, but when you go to different countries, do you notice uh, a difference in the quality of sunlight, the quality of daylight, in, depending on where you are? Yeah, of course. You know, I, I will always remember when I when I woke up for the first time of my life in Vietnam. I remember I arrived in Vietnam in uh, in Ho Chi Minh City. I was I wanted to prep this film called The Scent of Green Papaya, which was my first movie, and we were supposed to shoot in Vietnam, and uh, I never been there before. And I remember I arrived in Vietnam, you know, uh, at night, and uh, we went, you know, through in a jeep to the hotel, and uh, kind of a bad hotel, and uh, quite quite funky, but with beautiful lighting, with a fluorescent light, very blue, and uh, and already the, the mood was incredible. And I remember in the morning, waking up in my room and uh, looking at through the window, I remember seeing a sea of bicycles and small motorbikes with people riding them. And the light was just unbelievable. And uh, this light of Vietnam in the morning, it, uh, maybe it was something like 5 a.m. It was just something you, you remember forever, you know. And, uh, and uh, sometimes I have to remind me this, this when I woke up in Vietnam. And after I, I, I didn't make the film there, but, you know, I came back to do another film there a few years after called Cyclo. But, yeah, of course, you know, so I shot in Australia a film called The Proposition. I, t- I can tell you in, propos- in the proposition when we were in the outback, you know, the size of the sun at sunrise was just like enormous and red and uh, things like this, you know, you don't see in Paris, you know. I live in Paris and uh, so, you know, uh, going to Vietnam or to the outback uh, in Australia is going to change your, the way you, you live in these countries, you know. Of course. I love the, I love the light in the, when I wake up in the morning, you know. Uh, I, I do too. That that's some of the best light ever. Yeah. <laughs> like uh, every day, yeah. if you yeah. could, the the morning light is is, and you only really get to see it and appreciate it for that very small piece of that very small window of time. It it yeah. is so fleeting. It just it, it travels. Um, I, I think it's I think it's amazing that from that question you actually uh, mentioned the two movies I want to talk to you about, ah. about most actually wow. because the first work that you your first. Uh, feature film, Son of Green Papaya, was the first time that I took note of, of your name. Uh, I remember that movie very well, of course, because it was nominated for an Academy Award for, yeah. for Best Foreign Language Film. And I also, before I had seen it, I read a review by Roger Ebert, who I think he said he'd seen it four times. Wow. And I did uh, not know that. Yeah. <laughs> the, wow. re- the review was very flattering. And yeah. wow. uh, and he, he talked about how uh, contemplative it was and um Here's something that I know because uh, I've spent a decade working as a cameraman, working on set, and mostly as an assistant, but occasionally yeah. as a DP. And yeah. I worked on enough jobs where uh, first-time director. Yes. And I can tell you that not a big surprise. Really, who I'm telling is the is, are the listeners right now. But the relationship between the DP and the director, especially a first-time director, it can the the, the director can rely a lot on the DP because usually the DP has more experience. Usually the DP mm. is, is is there to uh, to yes. to offer some some suggestions or some advice. Uh, whenever I see a movie that says first-time director, I know that sometimes that DP is very involved in some ways in the production. So I have a feeling that because it was a first-time director for The Scent of Green to Papaya, yeah. that there was you probably had some influence over the visuals, certainly in that movie, maybe even beyond what you might typically do as a as a, well, but you know, a cinematographer. I can so. tell you it was also my first movie as a DP. So, you know, that, we were, we were, both, we were, we were both starting... <laughs> And the, the story of this uh, of this film is incredible because, as I was saying, we went to Vietnam to scout um, a small neighborhood in uh, in Ho Chi Minh City, 
for one week and uh, we thought we would be able to shoot there. So we, I went there, I took a lot of photos. It was unbelievable, you know, the lighting people were unbelievable. Uh, I remember taking a lot of Polaroid at the time, I had this uh, SX-70 and uh, I still have them. I took a lot of photos in black and white and uh, I was, you know, in heaven to shoot there. I said, my God, it's going to be, I'm going to have a great year in Vietnam. But um, we couldn't shoot in Vietnam for, I don't know, you know, censorship reasons. I don't know. It was too, the country was opening, but still too closed to make a film. And uh, so we came back to Paris and it took six months to set up uh, a production for the film. And we had to shoot all on stage in Paris. I don't know if you, I don't know if you knew that. But in fact, you know, I went to Vietnam to look at the light of Vietnam. It was a luxury to study it. But after, I had to redo all of it in Paris on stage. Did you know that? I, I didn't know that. I mean, <laughs> that sounds... Like <laughs> I, I assumed I was looking at natural light. So no, that, but you know, <laughs> yeah, but you know, I did... I, it was my first movie also on, on, uh, in studio on stage or so ever. So it was my first feature film and my first work on stage. And uh, the, the stage was enormous because it, we, we wanted to put the world in, in one stage. It was quite big, and uh, we had trees. We had it was you know we had the gardens of the house because it was an open house in Vietnam. So it, it's uh, supposed to be. It's, it is set in 1950s in Vietnam, uh, in kind of colonial you know time. And um, I had to make lighting in stage looking like daylight, magic hour. I had to do everything, and I had a lot of light to do that. And I was a young DP, so nobody really wanted me to do this film except the director. And you know when you have a guy. Like this guy, I will always, you know, thank him for choosing me because it was the best start possible. If you are French, you, ex you at the time you could expect to do like a, a French comedy or something like this, you know, stories about two kids talking in a, in a kitchen or, you know what I mean, uh, seriously. And suddenly I was offered a film set in Vietnam, in Vietnamese, with the director being so demanding about the visual, he was referencing Henri Matisse. You know, uh, of course, Matisse. And you know, okay, and yeah. he was, and this director was talking to me about transparency, about quality of texture. I never heard about this before. Well, I knew, of course, but you know, you know, uh, I felt uh, uh, he opened up a lot f of things for me. So it was a dream because I could recreate the light I wanted. I, I could show that I had in my brain enough, you know, ideas to create daylight, uh, uh, sunrise, sunset. Uh, Gray day, I could do everything, and and the reference to Matisse was something. Wow, I was just like, because uh, also you know I started to paint after this film. I, I also became a painter too. So this film gave me the, uh, the desire to paint, and because when I was in Vietnam, to for the scout, I discovered the the, the Vietnamese painter, and I thought they were very much like Matisse style. So I didn't feel, I don't know, I feel they were not very intimidating. I thought, okay, why not? Why not? I could do that too. So I, at the same time, I was doing my first uh, feature film and I got the desire to paint, to become a painter. It also sounds like, uh, besides uh, this ex self-exploration, it sounds like you learned a lot in this process too. I think you learn a lot, of course, doing your feature film, but it sounds like it was a very deep collaboration between you and the director, and the director was uh, was teaching you as, as you went along here, which is also uh, that's a, a wonderful experience to have, especially on a movie that becomes, I mean, oh God, I know so many people whose first movies, they never want anyone to see them. <laughs> but your, yours is nominated for an Academy Award. I know, Award, so I know. And I saw he went, in, he went everywhere in the world. And, uh, but at the time, because it was before internet and all this thing, 
I was not so much aware of this. Mm. You know, I mean, uh, because the producer kind of, uh, they didn't really communicate the success of the film. So I was living in Paris. I knew the director w- w- was going to LA, you know, for the awards, but I didn't really realize that. It was too, I was too new, you know. So uh, it's after, you know, after the years after I was meeting people, you know, they were telling me it was their favorite movie. And some people, they were telling me it was a calming movie. They would watch it to 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 forget their stress and things like this. And I was like, wow, you know, unbelievable. You know, I've learned so much. I think I, could, I couldn't believe about doing something better uh, for a first film. But it was, it looks a very calm film, but it was uh, so hard to, to make it because it was difficult for a young DP. And I had so much light. You know, if you, I mean, I, I wish I had photos of the set, you know, with all the lights, you know, rig above. It was like shooting in the 50s, you know, because it was, uh, at the time you had no big lamps, no big HMI to, to, do, to do daylights. I was using a lot of small lights with, uh, with flags, you know, between every lamp. And uh, I, it was just incredible uh, way of uh, lighting in a very, very old school. Yeah. So, you know, I, I never lit a film like this before or uh, after, I mean, never, because it, it was my s- only opportunity to go so special with this film, you know, so because maybe of the, the fact that the set was exterior set. You know, we were in a garden. Still now, you know, I, I would like to go back to these days uh, shooting this film because I, I, I was super happy. It's so much more work to have to set all those extra lights too, to do that now these days, of course, with, with, with bigger lights. It, yeah. it make, it, and you can spend a lot of time massaging it, but to have to set up 10 lights to equal one it's very, it's very mm. difficult. So no, I, mean, I, I, I think I had something like mm. 800 kilowatts of, uh, of light, you know, and, uh, and the producer said, oh, Benoit, you're, 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 maybe you don't have the experience to do that. And uh, so I had to, well, you know, I had to do these kind of meetings and show, you know, uh, I had, you know, enough energy. I, I, I knew what I was doing. You know, when you do your first film, you have to convince so many people. Mm. And uh, it was tiring, but, um, well, you know, I've done it. <laughs> well done. Yeah. Uh, yeah, thank you for sharing that that story. And I know that uh, I, I did it, I did the old cameraman's trick. I just started rolling on this, of course. So mm. uh, rather than doing our formal introduction, but we should pro- probably do that. Benoit Delum, thank you so much for being on the Cinematography Podcast. I thank you. The next time that your name really jumped out at me was when I saw this movie called The Proposition. And uh, I'm a fan of Nick Cave. <laughs> and so uh, when I had read that he had written a movie... I was like, I have to go see this movie. And I went and I saw it in the theater. And uh, then, of course, something triggered in the back of my head when I recognized your name from The Scent of Green Papaya. And I will tell you, uh, not disappointed. It's, uh, it was a, a, a very stylized, very interesting look of the Australian, the ruggedness of Australia. And you seem to specialize in period pieces, I would almost say. You've done, it seems, so many different sorts of, of period pieces. That's, do you feel almost that you're a pigeonhole, that you are the period piece guy, that everyone comes to you for that? Or do you, um. is that something you really like and you want to do more of that? Or something totally different? Maybe it's, it's neither. Those hmm. things. Well, I don't know about period pieces. I, I don't know honestly. Maybe, yeah, maybe this is what you, know, you feel when you see the list of film. I don't feel. I don't feel myself. I am one of these guys, but uh, I did a lot of them. It's true. Uh, maybe I felt also it was easier to achieve some interesting lighting on period movie. Because at, the, at this time, when I was starting, I thought the contemporary film. We say uh, they were kind of, uh, especially in France, they were not very interesting to me. So, but uh, when I was offered a period film, I thought, okay, I can, I don't know, I have something to say. I have something to show in a, 
because it's not obvious, you know, what, what you have to do. You, ha you have to have a concept. When you make a period movie, you have to have a concept. And you have to make some research. And um, sometimes when you make a modern film, you, um, you can take things as, as they are, you know. And uh, so maybe you people feel you, you do less research on a modern film than you do on a period film. But you know, when I was doing the proposition, proposition was very more than a period film. It was a film shot in a very difficult, you know, um, uh, environment. Very hot, crazy hot. I never seen the world being so hot than in Australia. It looked hot. Yeah, you know, <laughs> I remember. I remember one day we were shooting John Hurt in this kind of bar, you know, you know, in, in the outback, real bar we built in the desert, you know, there, and uh, kind of corrugated iron, you know, and it was really. We had absolutely no protection from the sun, and we shot there all day long. John Hurt was, uh, he was wearing a very, very big coat. It was crazy. I remember at one point touching the dolly. It was boiling hot. You couldn't leave your hand or the dolly. Same, the camera was boiling hot, and we had to drink a, a glass of water every 10 minutes to survive. Wow. And this film was done in, in with these kind of conditions, all the movie, you know, and uh, flies everywhere going into your nostrils, <laughs> your, your ears, you know, your back, you know, your shirt, your, your, sh your shirt covered with flies. I did this film, but I couldn't really do it as I wanted to do because my crew, they were suffering so much from the, from the heat, you couldn't ask uh, things you would ask normally. I realized I uh, had to shoot it mainly, like, you know, with uh, very simple tools. And it made the film very strong because you know I couldn't do everything I wanted to do, and the light was so the light bounced from the orange ground, you know, it was so incredible. You know, you, you, what do you want to do there? You just have to, you have to be aware of what you see and, and capture it as well as you can. The script was so good, you know, the characters, the actors were so good. Guy Pearce, uh, Ray Winstone, Emily Watson, you know, Danny Houston. Amazing cast, amazing you cast. You know, and the scene with John Hurt was so good. And uh, I, sp I spent something like four months in the outback, you know, living in a small house, and uh, I did nothing else. You know, we had no distractions. The, uh, my only obsession was to survive physically, to be able to go back the next day to shoot it, because I knew it would be an incredible film. And uh, John Hillcoat, you know, was a also an incredible director. He, first, he didn't want me. He wanted... Uh, he wanted guys like uh, much more experienced than I was, you know, and I think Chris Menges was one of them. And um, I think first he wanted Chris Menges, who is one of my uh, hero, you know, DP, one of the best DP of the world, I think. And Chris maybe, I don't know, did not want, did not like the script so much and did not really push to get the job. And, uh, and uh, I don't know, I was second on the list. And because John Hillcott loved uh, this film Cyclo, I shot for real in Vietnam this time. Uh, and uh, it was a beautiful film, and uh, John uh, John loved Cyclo, and he said, "Do you want to do a, a Western in Australia with me?" It was the opposite style in a way, but uh, I love the proposition, I love the script, and uh, of course I knew Nick Cave. I didn't know I didn't know him personally, but I knew who Nick Cave was, and uh, so everything seems to be a, f a dream to me to get this job. It, well, well, I'll tell you the the limitations and the and I hear this. The, you know, I know from experience, but I hear this also from talking to to so many cinematographers that um, there's a lot of rom people romanticize the set. It's a, it's a, such a oh a romantic place, and these magic is happening and stuff. But there's a reason that people are being paid generally to do all this work, and there's a reason that there's so many names in the credits, and that is that it's hard, backbreaking work to actually set these things up. And a lot of 
a lot of the crew, not all the crew, but a, a big chunk of the crew, the camera, the lighting, the grip departments, they're all serving the image and they're serving uh, essentially under your command. They're, you yes. are, you're helping to uh, shape the, the, the visuals. And when you are in a difficult, dangerous, I mean, 90% of the world's <clears throat> most yeah. da dangerous animals live in Australia. Course, and then yeah. uh, the, the extreme heat, when you're trying to deal with all of this stuff and also tell the story, um, yeah, and of course, you don't have unlimited time to do this. It's usually, a, and a, the, the budget yeah. of the film affects exactly how many days that you have to do this. I'm guessing the proposition was not a particularly long shoot. No, it was something like eight weeks shoot. Wow. And I remember when when uh, when we arrived there with the, with the Australian crew, I had chosen a gaffer, very experienced gaffer, very nice guy. And after a week there in a, in Winton, in this small town, you know, in the, in the outback, I remember one day the guy came to me and said, Benoit, I can't, I can't live here. I can't stay here. I hate the flies. This guy was, he was an Australian guy, you know? And he said to me, oh, Benoit, I hate the flies. I, I hate the dust. I can't do it there. And I was shocked. I said, this guy is my gaffer. And, uh, you know, I could feel for him. I could see it was, it was too much for him. And uh, I said to him, listen, you know, I like your crew. We need your equipment. I want to make this film now. We don't want to replace you. Why don't you stay in your hotel? And it's fine, you know. You maybe you stay there in the in town. You stay in your hotel, and uh, I will do the film with your crew. This is what we did. What? <laughs> <laughs> this is what we did. And you know. Wait a second. I just want to make sure I heard you correctly. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> yes, Gaffer stayed in the hotel for the whole film. I, I don't mean to laugh, but uh, it just it serious. sounds it sounds so uh, it sounds Sorry. unbelievable. I never seen him again, you know. <laughs> I, I, I don't think that's very good for your uh, resume to say that, oh, yeah, I did this movie. Never, <laughs> never left the hotel. So no, of course not. But, you know, sometimes, sometime, you know, you make a film, you don't have the perfect crew, but you do incredible work. So I think I did a beautiful work on this film. I didn't have all the, all the toys, all the lamps, but uh, I discovered things more efficient for the film. I was using a lot of bed sheets I would put on the ground, you know. I, I lit half of the film with bed sheets. When I, when I was lighting Emily Watson, I would I was just white white bed sheets. I was that just put was a, yeah. I would just put bed sheets on the ground instead of being uh, having the warm reflection on, on her face. I wanted her to look to look very white. You know, because she's she she comes from England, she's kind of pure, mm -hmm. the white skin and I wanted, you know, to show her like you know, like the kind of colonial, you know, uh, you know, world compared to the rest of the, of the cast. And uh, so, yeah, I remember using a lot of bed sheets on this film. I, I don't, uh, I don't hear that very often. I, I, uh, I can tell you actually the first time I ever heard anyone mention uh, bed sheets as a, uh, a lighting tool was Russell Carpenter. Actually, Russell really? Carpenter told me that that's, the, that's his little trick that he pulls out yeah. all the time. So yeah. I think that, I think that's really cool. It is incredibly uh, powerful, you know, a way of lighting, you know, people don't, don't realize it sometimes. I've been lighting this film I was always, I never used polystyrene or billboard on this film, not once. I was bouncing light on the rock, on the ground. You know, I like to do that. You know, the uh, more I work, the less I'm using, you know, the, the white surface to bounce light. But there's so many more interesting things that you can use, actually, too. So, yeah. I mean, uh, that, that depend on your, yeah. your environment or your situation. But w uh, w Yeah, right. when I was doing Lawless, you know, the John Hillcott film, you know, mm -hmm. the second film I did with John Hillcott, it was my first film shot on digital, and uh, I realized I didn't know how to light at night with digital. I was not used to it. It was my first movie, 
So I invented the black bonds, what I call the black bonds. So I was I was asking my uh, my electricians to to set up you know big frames in black, black solid you know like black velvet, and I was I was using uh, big lamps on it like 10k bonds on the black bonds, and the lighting was it was doing was incredible. So from that day now I'm using s very often the black bonds you know, I think it, it I don't know it was giving an incredible quality to the skin. I was painting also uh, the, the some reflector in black, you know. So because I didn't know it was my first digital film, and uh, I was uh, I was a bit lost, you know. I couldn't find my bearings with a uh, with the night lighting. The Alexa was too sensitive, and I it was new to me. So the black bounce. I've I've heard of negative fill, but never black bounce. That's very yeah, interesting. Yeah. So so the ambient light that is coming back off of a solid a black solid yeah, yeah, yes. that, that's as as a as a soft source exactly wow it, I, it was incredible i mean i don't know i don't remember how i got this idea but i remember all the drapes expression thinking i was mad about this you know i said are you sure it looked really weird on set because normally you're used to see this big butterflies white you know lit you know and suddenly it was like this kind of weird color very very dark <laughs> And uh, I, I think you know, uh, it was the right, the right thing to do, and because I had to make the transition between film and digital, and people never talk about it because now it's uh, we forgot, you know, we how we, how we made the transition. People talked about it a lot in two thousand eight. Yes, two thousand eight was, it was, <laughs> <laughs> it, was a, it was a big topic of, of conversation then. Maybe two thousand seven, but it's true. Uh, yeah. It's almost a fait accompli. It's like yes, uh, yeah, it, it's. It's pretty much assumed now that you'll be shooting digital. There are a few people who get to, to yeah. shoot film, or occasionally they they, they pull film out. Yeah. But uh, I, I have a friend who works over at uh, Panavision in Woodland Hills, and uh, yes. I asked what this gigantic job was that was prepping with all these uh, platinums yeah. and these 2,000-foot mags. And he goes, oh, that's not a job. We just put those out to remind people that we have them. <laughs> and I went, what? <laughs> so, so, so yes, uh, yeah, wow, uh, wow. yeah. That, uh, yeah. that, that's that's the thing about the the digital revolution. It uh, yeah. it becomes uh, yeah. so, so people just expect it now. But it's a topic of conversation amongst. Yeah, yeah. Uh, like, I can tell you, I'm, I'm not nostalgic about the film stock. So. Yeah, you know, there's there's plenty of reasons not to be. There there are, there are some people who uh, I will tell you though. It's like seems to be this youngest generation that's coming up right now with like this oh, yeah. wistful, magical. Oh, it's film i have to well, use I know. film and then <sighs> I, know, I know many young dps they are buying film cameras you know because they want to sell themselves with new small cameras uh, and uh, i shot 35 movies on uh, with film stock you know and now i just i'm okay to to shoot digital i'm really okay i, I like it you know I, for me it's a new life it's very interesting for me so i i agree i was a film purist for a very long time i actually um uh, I, I can I can tell you the the phone call uh, that started my my whole process of uh, of actually being able to consider uh, digital. I had been working at a rental house uh, actually at this time that was specializing in television, so everything was was digital. But uh, a company contacted me called Dalsa, and Dalsa made the first ever 4K digital cinema camera. Mm. And I turned I I turned down this company a couple of times. Told them I didn't want to work for them, but the guy uh, Dalsa calls me up and he goes. Hey Ilya, I know we've already spoken, and you don't want to work here. But with all due respect, you've never seen 4K, so you don't know what the fuck you're talking about. <laughs> and I said, I guess that's true. But I thought it was just a big HD camera. He's like, Why don't you come here, look at the images, and then tell me no? <laughs> and I 
said, okay. And then when I saw it for the first time, it was like, ah, now I get it. Now yeah. this higher resolution, now better dynamic yeah. range. But hmm. in the early days of digital, it was, it was, it was, it was yeah, sad. No. It was bad. Yeah, there wasn't, yeah. it was not good. Now, we, now we've come a long way. It's really yes. amazing. So I, I didn't mean to go off on this tangent here. We're here to talk about uh, your process here. So we were also talking about uh, possibly being, uh, well, I, I'm, maybe I made the, the incorrect, uh, the incorrect statement, but it seemed like you do a lot of period work. It seems like a, a lot of the movies that you're doing are, are, are different, different, different locations, different yeah, times in history. You did a Matthew McConaughey movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, yeah. Uh, no, no, I know, I know. It is this uh, big uh, secession war film with Matthew McConaughey, uh, Free State of Jones. Yeah, I know. Mm-hmm. And uh, I certainly I do more period movies than. Uh, Contemporary movie. This is true. I, I don't think that's a bad thing. I mean, I no, but you know, it's funny because you know, I don't think about myself like this. Yeah. So it's great to you know I don't look at my resume every day. Think okay, I should do more <laughs> modern film. Yeah. You know, but I realize that I don't shoot many computers in my film. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I don't sh- I don't shoot many iPhones in my film for <laughs> sure. You know, <laughs> yes. you know, when I did this movie with um, with Anton Corbijn, the Most Wanted Man. Mm. which was a real modern movie, even if it was a bit period, but, you know, like maybe 90s, mm. you know, they had iPhones, they had computers everywhere. I, I was, it was new to me. Mm. I realized I don't shoot that very much. I don't shoot cars very much, too. <laughs> you know, <laughs> this is true. <laughs> no, but, you know, because, you know, I'm a painter, too, so in my painting, I would never... Painting I, the it, iPhone? <laughs> no, like my paintings are very much, you know, timeless, you know. Mm. They, could, they are very primitive, and I like the primitive world. It's true, you're right. I don't like, you know, modern stuff. I do, I use it, I live it like a normal yeah, modern no. man, but but uh, when I do a painting, it's completely timeless. It could mm-hmm. be uh, from three centuries ago, or I don't know, or from the, you know, prehistoric thing, in a way. Mm-hmm. I, I could go that primitive. Mm. So I don't like to shoot computers and uh, iPhones and all these devices. Uh, it's true. I must say, so I prefer to shoot... Uh, People lighting themselves with candles sometimes, for sure. You know, I agree with that. But you know, yeah, I like to light people with a simple fire. A theory of everything, still a little bit period. Kind of period. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> not, 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 not totally, but, uh, but no, uh, but yeah. know, but more modern too. So, uh, yeah. uh, uh, so you you got to you got to flex a little bit more modern day mu- muscle yeah, and stuff. No, and I, and yeah. uh, uh, again, uh, fan- fantastic movie, fantastic performance, fantastic look. I mean, it's. Uh, I love Sylvia Ferguson. I love this film very much. I think, uh, you know why? I, you know why I was so so crazy about doing this movie. At this at this movie because years before I was offered to do this uh, Julian Schnabel movie called The Diving Bell and the Butterfly. Mm. And I was unavailable, mm. and uh, and I was already on a movie, and uh, Julian um, called me. Uh, I was in Paris one weekend. On the I was on this film in London, and I came back a weekend to see my family. And I got a phone call from Julian on my mobile, who said, uh, "Benoit, I am in Paris prepping this uh, great uh, script. You know, this great film, the diving bell and the butterfly. Uh, I would love to meet with you." And I was, I knew I was on a film already. So I knew it, but you know, Julian said, can you come and meet with me today? Yeah. And I said, I said, yes, but I knew I should. I said, no, because I was on a movie. And uh, he said, come, come to see me. And uh, I spent the afternoon with him. I was a big fan, of course, of, of him as a painter, also as a, and as a director. And uh, I liked him immediately. But you know, I did not know what to do. And so I, I listened to him for two or three hours. And at the end, I said to him, you know, I was quite shy to say that. I said, well, I'm a, 
Julian, I'm already on a film. I'm shooting in London. Uh, we shoot like for 10 or 12 weeks. So, and this film was produced by the Weinstein brothers. And it's for the film called Fort Room 1408, you know, from the Stephen Stephen King story. And I was I was in the middle of this with John Cusack and everything. So I couldn't go away, you know, I couldn't quit the film. And Julian said to me, and I think it was a good lesson also for me. Julian always gives a good lesson. He said, um, Benoit, you know, you only have one life, so consider doing my film. And I was not brave enough to, to quit the film. Life choices. There, 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 there's so many of these that, that come along. Yeah. And, and, you know, you might not have gotten to do Theory of Everything. Exactly. Though, so you yeah, know why? So, so when I got the subject, well, Stephen Hawking's subject, which I think is an incredible man, you know, and because because of his illness, you know, the fact, you know, he's kind of locked in his body, you know, and, uh, and the subject of uh, the diving bell is a guy also locked in, a locked in syndrome. I thought they were kind of similar subjects, you know, in a way. The way uh, um, the guy in the diving bell is talking and he's writing his book, you know, he's just, you know, moving one, one eyelid. And um, you had similar scenes in uh, Stephen Hawking thing, you know. I thought it was very, I don't know, I thought it was very similar in a, uh, so when I read the Stephen Hawking script, I said, okay, this is for me, I want to do it. It was nearly a way to repair the fact I didn't do the diving bell. So it's one, you lose one film, but you... You gain another. Exactly. Yeah. You know, I, I always think, you know, you learn how to do the next film when you do a film. Sometimes it's not the best film you wanted to do, but uh, you learn something from the next one. Yeah. Or your, your regret push you to do to choose quicker the next one, because yeah. you know more what you want. I always try to choose film when yeah. they absolutely relate to myself. You know, I cannot make films if it, if it is too far away from my life. I can't do it. I don't choose a film only because of the director, because it's not enough. Even if the guy is a genius, nicest guy in the world, I also need to have a story. I want to dream about the story. I want to live with it. I want to get ideas. And um, I can only do that if I'm, I relate to it. I, think, I don't think it's about period movies, you know, my style. It's more about the stories were adapted to me. The stories where you can relate to the yeah. characters, where you can relate yeah. to the, the, the plate. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, I think it's very much this, you know, for me, very much. And of course, maybe there are period, but it's not the first idea for me. To, it's not why I go to them. Do you, do it's you a mix of things. So uh, I, I can tell then that you already, as a painter, had some uh, relation then with Vincent van Gogh. Yeah. So. Yeah, I mean, uh, this is why I made the film. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think? If you are if you are painting, you know, like 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 I do seriously since twenty years between movies. Suddenly, you know, when you when I heard about Julian Schnabel making the film about Van Gogh, I thought everything is perfect. I finally managed to work with Julian. I work about Van Gogh. It's just, it it was. I mean, you know, it's stupid to say, but for for once, it was a dream, and I did chase this film you know i never chase a film because i feel who i am to to ask someone to 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 meet with me if, the, if this guy doesn't know doesn't want to to interview me you know i mean i've done enough film they know my work so you know I, i'm not this kind of guy trying to push the door open the door to say oh I, please you know i want to be uh, in the casting but this time i just i i wrote an image of the producer john killick and uh, i really wanted to make it I did everything to get a meeting with Julian, and I wanted this film. I, it was so obvious; it was for me. But I, I still had to convince Julian. We in in uh, since ten years, I kind of forgotten about me. So I had to redo all the work. 
And uh, finding things happen for me to get this film, you know, it's quite difficult to get. Obviously, it's great that you got it. Maybe you ought to chase movies more often. Maybe that's not not such a such a bad thing to actually to go after what what you like. So, uh, and uh, yeah. and I, I, you know, it, I would say that those sorts of stories don't come around come around every day. And mm. of course, uh, Willem Dafoe, yeah, fanta- is a fantastic. Yes. Echo. So, I have to come clean here. I've only watched the trailer three times. Okay, I haven't, really? haven't been able to see the movie. But yeah, I will tell you, even in the in the the six minutes of screen time I've gotten to see from this movie. Huh. The, the visuals and the settings and the the large scope day exterior type yeah. of stuff that you're doing I, I I mean usually what what tends to happen is you have to work really really hard to get that that sort of look or you have to shoot at the right at the exact moment at the time of day and it looked to me like you did a you did a little bit of both but there was a lot of like well-timed mm. shots of like suns going down or suns mm, coming yeah. up and uh, I mean what, t- tell me about the process of making the making this movie and you know and and having to shoot it I know the right time because it's hard to digitally create that sun out there in the sky. So I'm sure you were. Yeah, well, strangely enough, we didn't really, we didn't try to do to take so, so much care about the lighting. You know, when we were shooting, not so much. Maybe, maybe because we were shooting in winter and uh, at every end of every day we we had magic hour by accident. Hmm. You know, at the end of every day we just shoot some beautiful shot because it was there. But nothing was scripted really like this. So I was using, you know, the light we we still had to to improvise scene. And Julian li- loves that, you know. We just sometimes we say, oh, we have one hour to shoot. Let Willem go into the field and Benoit follow him and do do something. One of the best scenes, you know, I shot like this in Magic Hour is totally improvised. I remember Willem, you know, said, okay, what am I what am I doing? Julian said, you you walk in the field and you go to paint to find your spot to paint. And I shot. I shot for one hour uh, with the camera in my hands because I did also film with the camera in my hands, not uh, on my shoulder, but really properly handheld in front of me. I'd reduce the camera to a small box, really as light as possible, so I could I could go anywhere with it. It was like a steady cam, but not steady. A steady cam with more soul, mm. you know. But I could I could follow Willem everywhere, so we did incredible scene like this, non-scripted. Where you, you just see Van Gogh going to the field, it's, I think it's, it's crucial to understand what it was to be a painter at that time. You know, you the guy would have to, would have to carry this, his stuff on his back, go on the, walk for hours to to find the right spot and, and and paint there and go back, go home, put everything back. You know, uh, again, you know, and uh, it was super hard. And I think Julian liked the idea to show it was physical to be a painter, the relationship to. The, nature was very physical so I you know I was experiencing the same thing in myself with the camera you know I was following Willem like we were like twin twins you know in the field you know uh, him with uh, his easel and all this stuff and me with the camera we were very similar and it was incredible to shoot this film for the, to shoot with Willem and I knew him since uh, I shot the most wanted man uh, with him and uh, he was he had a, g- a good part in the film too and uh, so I already knew him so I knew could get on quite well and uh, was it just you two no assistance no nobody or well I had, I had a focus puller with me all the uh, time but you know the most difficult thing on this film is funny enough was to to hide the crew mm-hmm. because I was I was so free in my in my filming I was doing kind of dance or choreography outside around William all the time so sometime you know and also Julian would talk to me in her earpiece mm. and uh, so I was always connected to him I was I was free and uh, I could improvise, but also 
he was with me. Sometimes he will redirect me some, to something else. Mm. Sometimes I was filming Willem, and he will just uh, talk to me. He will say, Benoit, look at the sky. Shoot this beautiful tree on your right, you know. And I will come back to Willem after. So we were shooting together. We were, we were connected. It was very free and also connected. I was never alone during the shot. Julian was always with me. So it was very, it was an incredible film to do. And, uh, you know, I felt really a, a cameraman doing this film, like never, never before, because uh, I became a camera really myself, camera on, 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 uh, on foot, you know. That sounds like an experience that you you couldn't recreate that any other way. So it's really it's really wonderful that you had that, and that's a wonderful um, anecdote. I almost don't want to. I I, I don't want to go too much deeper into it because yeah. I, I think that there's some wonderful mystery to about yeah. about uh, the insights that you that you gained from this movie, and it's already got a lot of good good buzz. But I I do want to. Uh, I know we, we've been talking for a while here, and I know as we're getting towards the towards the end of the interview, uh, I I've heard. That you have something very interesting going on next. I don't know anything about it, yeah, but yeah, but, yeah. but, uh, but your your assistant, your handler here, was telling telling yeah. me that you that, uh-huh. that, that, that uh, I should definitely ask you about what what do you have going on next. So so yeah, uh, yeah and I'm doing a, I'm going to do after working about a, a painter about Van Gogh. Mm-hmm. I'm going to do a film about uh, a photographer called Eugene W. Smith. He was an incredible photographer. For, uh, he was working for Life magazine in the 50s, 60s, and uh, 70s and uh, it's really beautiful story uh, th- because this guy uh, when was when the film start Eugene Smith went in into all the big wars covered everything possible on the planet and uh, took a lot of risk and uh, did incredible you know photos and uh, he at this time when the film starts he kind of depressed he's living in his loft in uh, New York nearly living like a recluse he takes photos from his windows of people walking in the street, and the guy has been in wars, you know, and uh, and uh, suddenly he becomes this kind of guy who can't go in the street. Really, we're scared of everything. He takes photo from 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 his windows, and his girl, he has a Japanese girlfriend, and uh, and we she uh, she says to him, you know, there is something happening in Japan in a small city called Minamata. And uh, I don't know if you're aware, but what's this? What happened in Minamata in the 70s? Yeah, it was, was it the mercury poisoning? Yeah, the yeah. mercury thing, you yeah. know. I know, and yes, I, I saw a documentary about it. Yeah, so, okay, so the, the film is called Minamata, and so it's about uh, what happened in Minamata and uh, when Eugene Smith comes, and uh, he's supposed to come for two or two weeks, uh, do these uh, photos for Life magazine, and he stays for three years. And uh, jo- Johnny Depp is going to, to play Eugene Smith. And uh, it could be a, a wonderful project. It's giving me goosebumps. Actually, it's it sounds it sounds re- mm. it sounds really wonderful. It's a, it's a mm. it's a horrible event. Sounds like a wonderful story. Sounds like a wonderful you know uh, yeah. biography. And um, what? Yeah. Have, have you been to Japan before? No, you, but you, you know, are you going for this movie? Sadly, we're going to shoot a big part of this movie in Belgrade mm. on stage, and uh, and I think we certainly go to Japan at the end, you know, to shoot some exteriors. But uh, I think it's okay. I shot uh, Saint Green Papaya in Paris. Yeah, yeah. So I, I know it's a good sign in a way. When the director said to me, oh, Benoit, I don't think we can go to Japan. He was very sorry. I said, well, you know, listen, my best memory of filmmaking, you know, my first film I shot in Paris, it was Vietnam 1950s. So I know when you shoot on stage, you can have a very strong concept, you know, of what you want to do because you need to decide things more because you need to build things. If you go on the real location, you, you, you will never work like this. You will take what you have. If you go in a, in a stage, it's like a blank page. 
you can decide every single object you put in the film. So the film, the film can be much more stylized and more poetic, and it's a chance. You know, more and more, I, I think every film has its own history. It has to be made like it, it, can, it can be made. When I see people fighting forever, they say, no, I don't make my film now because I don't have this and this and this. I think they are wrong many times because there is always a way to make a, s a small film really well, being clever and, uh, and uh, trying to adjust the concept really well and you, you just shoot what you need. Maybe you, you don't be the full set, you just beat for one angle, but you know, it can be wonderful. Who needs a reverse angle, you know? Many people, they many people when you're a DP, you, 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 you see beautiful sets and incredible uh, quality, and the director says, I can't shoot here because I don't have a reverse angle. This is the saddest uh, phrase in the world. I don't <laughs> want to hear this again in my life from a director. I can't shoot here because there is no reverse angle. You're, you're right. If you want to break the heart of your cinematographer, just say we can't shoot here because there's no because there's no, there's no reverse angle. That that's because you give up all the good stuff when that you give up all the good stuff. It's like who cares about a reverse angle if you're going to be in a compromised location or something yeah. else? You can do it all from yeah. one way. So that sounds amazing, and I'm sure that you'll probably get to scout. Uh, you'll uh, you'll probably scout Japan before you yeah. end up shooting and stuff. Uh, have Have you been there before? Have you? Um, well, I've been in Japan only very briefly. Uh, I shot a commercial there, so. Uh, and I, I was amazed, you know, how different it was from our culture. And I, I love, I love, I love it, you know. Well, so I bring this up only because I, uh, I probably outside of the U.S., it's the country I've been to the most. And oh, really? Uh, I, will, I will tell you that um, I think the light there is very, very interesting. And I know since we, we talked about at the beginning, so yeah. we talk about seeing the light. Uh, I personally feel like there's a lot of magenta in the oh, light really? there, and um, yeah. I'd be I'd be very curious to 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 hear your take wow, too. Okay. And, and here I, I don't mean to go down the, this this total rabbit hole, but I'll tell you very briefly because I think you might find this fascinating. I used to work with this very very uh, the the scientist, very very smart guy named Dan Rosen, and Dan uh, explained to me, uh, and and I can't do it justice here, but that the reason different spots of the on the globe do have different properties of light and do have different colors of light has to do with the raking angle of the sun hitting, yeah. hitting the atmosphere. No, for sure. And, uh, mm. and basically that, that portion of the atmosphere then dissipating the light in different ways. Wow. And so some wavelengths come through clearer more than others. It also kind of explains probably why Sony had a real problem with cameras looking green in the U.S. Yeah, in the yeah, 1970s yeah, 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 and 80s because yeah. they were calibrating everything probably to magenta. Yeah, but, it's interesting. But, but anyway, I, uh, uh, the, I I quite enjoy the light there. I'm sure you guys will you, yeah. you'll have a lot of fun. And yeah, I mean, but when you go there, you'll 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 look at all this stuff and, <laughs> and see what I'm talking about. So. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm can't wait to be there. To be honest, you know. So, I'm, uh, I think it's great after Van Gogh to do uh, Eugene Smith. When I was a teenager, and uh, I was doing um, black and white photography, you know, I said, oh, I, I learned everything. You know, I learned. I did film school, but I learned everything shooting photo for myself, you know, in black and white, and I had my lab uh, in my the kitchen, you know, at home, you know, and so you, for me, Eugene Smith is a, is a kind of a god, you know, he's a god, god of black and white photography. I can't wait to do that. <laughs> it, uh, well, uh, it's, it's mm. good to be looking forward to it. It sounds like this is going to be a, a really, I think it'll be a really great project for you. So, um, Anyway, uh, Benoit, I think that's a wonderful place for us to, to leave it. Thank you very okay, much for coming you. for coming on the show and well, for spending, being so generous with your time. I really, I really oh, thank it was you great. So much. It was great. I mean, you, I could talk about you know the past in a, as a present. Well, you know what? We'll have to have you on again. I'd love to have you come on the show okay, again. Like maybe, ma maybe, maybe after this next movie. So with pleasure. Uh, it's a real pleasure. Thank you very much, Benoit. 
That was spectacular. I'm so glad that you were on the show. And now, short ends. All right, so Ben, uh, it's short end time. I love short end time. W- what What's your short end this week? My short end is something that you would very much predict I would be in love with. Oh, no. Is it another podcast? No, it's not. Okay. Although I could go down that road. There's a, there's a podcast I love right now. It's called Hitman. Oh, jeez. Okay. Um, so, so what is your real short end? My real short end is that Shudder... Uh, the streaming service that uh, released Video Palace. F- full disclosure, released Video Palace, but is not paying me or even asking me nicely to say what I'm saying. Ooh. They have rebooted one of my favorite George Romero movies as an ongoing series. It, what? It is called Creep Show. So if you saw Creep Show, which came out, I believe, in 1981, I distinctly remember dragging my father uh, because I was too young to see it, uh, convincing him to take me to see Creep Show, which is sort of. Somewhere between like Twilight Zone, Tales from the Crypt, Hitchcock pre- presents with a very George Romero twist and, and for its time, a very modern use of uh, practical makeup effects. So uh, Greg Nicotero, who you might know from The Walking Dead, sure. is running Creepshow and mm. um, and some, some people, some of whom I know, uh, including like the writer John Skip. Uh, have episodes, or uh, I don't really know him super well, Rob Schraub, but I do know his wife because she was at Kate Freund, who was in Video Palace. Mm. Uh, he directed an episode, uh, but they basically have kind of a murderer's row of cool genre people making uh, what I would say is sort of a Tales from the Crypt-esque jaunt through uh, a very specific George Romero-esque horror universe. And they are the na- creep show universe. The creep show universe, and they are nailing the style. It's it's because it's Greg Nicotero, and he is the end of KNB effects. There's a lot of really kick-ass practical effects, and I've only seen the first episode. They had a, a big screening. Is it out now? Can anyone see it? It is. Uh, the first episode is on uh, Shutter. They're releasing uh, one new episode a week, um, and so I think Thursday episode two drops. There are two stories in every episode, and if you're a fan of the original creep show, I would say it is a can't miss. Wow. Okay. It's like goosebumps for adults. It is just like goosebumps for adults. All right. I'm I'm glad that I was able to uh, to to nail that there. Okay. So uh, Ben, my short end this week is American cinematographer. Have you ever heard of this American cinematographer? I think uh, no. What, I, I haven't heard of it. No. American cinematographer magazine is that magazine that takes up half of my house. Oh yes. That uh, you you do have quite the collection, and I, think I have you've read every, every cover. Yeah. You. I have every issue going back to I I want to say 1990. Five. That's really good. But that's uh, when I started reading. In some of the uh, super nerdy collector circles I'm in, you are a lightweight. But oh, uh, of course, of course. I'm, but I'm, but I'm you've not... read them all, and I know people who have these collections. And they haven't read them all. Yeah. The, it, it, does it like lose resale value if you take it out of the plastic bag? Mm, yeah, I don't think there's much of a resale. American but cinematographer the... is meant to be read. I've actually thought about, the... and I've, I, I'm, I'm springing this on you. Yeah. I've thought about taking my collection and offering it to you to put it here as a resource to people oh my god that's that's a huge resource but really i'm guessing your wife just wants it out of the house uh no i i wanted to get use like oh, okay I, I good. Mean, like, so I, so I, alicia if you ever listen to this it's she doesn't. not okay it's good so <laughs> then uh, it's not about she, she hears me yapping in her face more than enough she does not need to listen to me while she's on the go i i had heard some rumbling some years ago too about uh the entire history like every single issue of american cinematographer going to become uh, available online is like an app sort of thing but i will tell you that nothing beats actually physically holding media exactly like we I talked agree. about before and flipping through the page 
pages to read what it is you want to. People will make the case for Kindles or reading scripts as PDFs. I tell you, nothing takes the place of actually physically holding it. That's that's the best experience. And the reason I'm bringing up American Cinematographer is it was, and I think it still is, really a unusual publication in that it's associated with a uh, associated with the American Society of Cinematographers associated with uh, with that group as their official publication it uh, comes out frequently with very very high caliber of writing once, once a month yeah one, once a month but occasionally they do special double issues and other true. things they have not uh, in an era when a lot of other publications have gotten thinner and slimmer they really haven't they keep up good work and I got to say a lot of it has to do I think with the leadership uh, of their their editors and publishers uh, people like uh, Stephen Pizzillo does a fantastic job with this as does uh, John Whitmare who uh, really really and Jay Holbin there's so many great writers also uh, Phil Rhodes who I if he's not been on the show, we're going to have him on the show at some point. They have really great people who know how to make technical information accessible to everyone, as well as also giving enough technical information for the people who really are technical to get it. So uh, American well, Cinematographer. And, I mean, can I also say, yeah. like, American Cinematographer was an inspiration for us to start this podcast. Yeah. I love reading issues of American Cinematographer. Like, I remember uh, in college reading the issue uh, about 12 monkeys mm. and the DP talking about how uh, he would put black pantyhose behind the lens and, and, and wrap it off with a rubber band. It was the first time I'd ever heard of that technique. I know it's not a new technique. And then I started doing it and I was like, Oh, that's cool. Uh, I, I, I was always less interested in the, like, you know, like looking at a, although there's value in this as well of, of seeing like an overhead chart where it's like, you know, we have 27 dino lights over here. And, <laughs> yes, uh, yes. And, you, you, Mr. Film School student, you're like, what's a dino light? And oh my God, I can never afford that. So, exactly. Yeah. But I, I, I loved it when they would get into the weeds. It's actually dino light. Sorry, okay. my bad. <laughs> I've only okay. ever read it. I've never actually had <laughs> access to one. Um, I, I would love reading about like the practical hands-on techniques that people would use kind of mind expanding to me and uh, that's why I always read American Cinematographer even when it's a movie I've never heard of a lot of times the DP's talking about some cool technique or some interesting idea they had and that they that they tried out or something that they tested that gave them a really interesting and unique look and uh, you know I, I don't mean to chase the dragon of we have we have to make everything look unlike anything has ever looked before but I, I do think that as far as technology publications go, American Cinematographer has, has always been an amazing resource that gives us technology, but in an accessible form. Yeah, they're really doing, uh, they're really keeping it at a high level. And whereas a lot of other magazines are, are folding or getting, um, they're losing their focus. Or just going online. Yes, or, or going online. American Cinematographer keeps it real and they know their audience and uh, they really are kind of an outlier in the industry. There isn't other people doing like what they do. And I'm really glad that we've got them. Thank you, American Cinematographer, for existing. <laughs> yes, uh, the current uh, the current issue has got a fantastic story about Checo Verace, who, of course, we... Have, I know that guy. Yes, he, he was just here recently uh, about It Chapter 2. Uh, it's the October 2019. And uh, definitely, definitely worth uh, checking out at your local newsstand if you still have such a thing. Out. Yes, checkoing out. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, it's terrible. Uh, it's a good thing you're turning red right now. That is that that that, 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 that yeah, that was that was bad. All right, so so Ben, there's my complicated, long-winded plug for American Cinematographer. If you've never seen it, it's worth looking at, and you might find some inspiration. You might some, find some practical information, and at the very least, you might just find some of the best writing that this industry has to offer. Absolutely. So uh, that about does it for the end of episode 49. We'll be back with episode 50. 50. That's a biggie. That's crazy. We should have a party. 
We should definitely have a party. We'll have a 50, 50 episode party. What I'll do is I'll come here and I'll demand my t-shirt from you. Anyway, uh, so Ilya. Thanks some people. Yeah, or where can people, where can people find you? Uh, people just uh, go to benrockonline.com and you'll see everything that I feel like showing you. Uh, you can find me over at Hot Rod Cameras. And of course, don't forget our social media. Our social media, which has uh, over a thousand likes on Facebook. Yes, a whole thousand. Whole thousand. I, I, we, we didn't, we never thought if social media mattered for podcasts. So, and we got 255 people as of this recording who like us on Instagram or follow us on Instagram. Please, please do one of those things. If you use those things, that would be, yeah, that would be great. It doesn't cost you anything. And it really gives us a little, uh, you know, or even better share it, share it with a friend. If you like this so much, like the, the person I met uh, earlier who, you know, didn't know I was associated with the podcast, but heard the podcast, uh-huh. he'd never shared it with anyone. So share it with someone. Say, say, hey, listen to this. Yeah. This is good. With the exception of that one thing, it's not especially political in these times. You need a... <laughs> yeah, you were super political there by you need mentioning a, a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> you need a nice tonic from all the from all the rumble outside in the horrible world. <laughs> all right. Uh, thank you, Alana Cody. Thank you, Abby and Ben. Thank you, Kay Zalatrachi, who's not hearing my voice. Definitely not listening. Yeah. All right. Until episode 50... Goodbye. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening.